Open your Bibles to Psalm 39. Psalm 39 is where we're going to be this morning. Have you ever hit rock bottom? Maybe it was sin that put you there. As all sin does, it it begins with this promise that it's going to fulfill you, that it's going to be fun, that it's going to deliver on all of these promises, but it never seems to. Perhaps you chased it as far as you could, and, and quicker than you knew, you looked in the mirror and you didn't recognize the person that you saw there. Or maybe it was depression that sent you to rock bottom. It could have been depression as a result of sin in your own life. Or it might have been depression through no fault of your own. You just gradually grew more convinced of all of the horrible things that you think about yourself. You gradually grew more convinced that all of them were true. And over time, you grew more reclusive, pushed away from people, and you were oddly comforted by the deepest, darkest thoughts that you've ever thought. Or maybe what sent you to rock bottom was an unspeakable tragedy. The loss of someone very close to you. The loss of people near us is unnatural, and it's meant to feel as though that we're subjected to some form of punishment, because that is precisely the definition of death, is the reason death is in our world, isn't it? And it's effective. It brings us so much grief. So much grief that years afterward, we feel these waves of grief come over us from time to time. Whatever the reason... Many of us have been in that place where we've just hit the bottom of the cave, where it seems to be darkness is all around us. And I'm confident that if any of us live long enough, all of us will at one time or another spend our tour of duty at the bottom. In our passage this morning, this is precisely where David finds himself in Psalm 39. So let's read our word here that's before us of David hitting rock bottom. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. 
Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. A man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we ask, as we open your word, would you open it to us? Help us to understand it. Each and every person in this room, open our eyes to all of the intricacies and mysteries within this text. Only you can apply this word to us the way it needs to be applied. You know every heart in this room. Would you take this word and uniquely to each and every one of us, apply it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Needless to say, as you've read Psalm 39 now, it's pretty dark, right? It's, it's bleak. It starts with frustration on David's part. It then moves to utter darkness. And then at the end, gives very little hope, doesn't it? It's dark. But by the time we finish the psalm, David's not out of the woods He's in a much darker place than we actually even saw him in last week in Psalm 38. Psalm 39 feels a bit, as you read it, like Ecclesiastes. He says things like, My lifetime is as nothing before you. That's right there in verse 5. He says, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. There's really not much bolder a statement someone can make about the desperate nature man finds himself in than that. Lord, it's dark. You can store up wealth and you don't know where it's going when you die. You don't really have a say. Man goes about as a shadow. It's a hopeless situation that he's painting about mankind in general. As we start thinking about how to interpret the Psalms, as well as the rest of the Old Testament, hey, this, is, this is a hard thing. This is, this is difficult, I think, for us. It's really important, though, that we understand what it is that we're doing when we open up the Old Testament. I think it's tremendously important. We've had conversations as, as recent as last week, even in our small group, on how to read the Old Testament, and the Psalms in particular. And, and what was discovered there is it's, it's really pretty difficult for us, I think, often. 
from the last 38 psalms that we've read and that I've preached on up until the psalm this morning, we've read them, I've, I've tried to give the context as much as we can tell about what's happening in that psalm and, and how we can apply it. I've, I've done my best as far as I could to demonstrate how each psalm is actually supernaturally intended for us to see Christ, for us to be pointed forward to Calvary. My hope has been for the last 38 psalms to read through the psalm and actually say, this is not just for David's audience. This is for us who are on this side of the cross. And he's actually pointing in this psalm to Jesus. So we've tried to do that in every single psalm. So especially this summer, as we're preparing to spend the next many months in 1 Samuel, that's where we're headed after next week. Next week is Psalm 40, and then after that we're going into 1 Samuel. So we're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, so just pack your bags, okay? All right, just get ready. There's going to be a lot of this. But as we are kind of preparing this summer to read the Old Testament and understand it and preparing to go into uh, 1 Samuel, we're, we're wanting to practice understanding the Old Testament by looking through the lens of Calvary, always, in, in every passage. And I understand just having talked to a lot of you and having spent time with people in my small group and, and talked with them, that that's a muscle that's not often flexed for us. It's sometimes difficult for us to, to think that way. I want you to remember that the grand purpose of the Old Testament is not history. Think about that for just a second. The big purpose of the Old Testament is not merely history. It's not for you to go back and just read and think, oh, this is what happened in history. It's not merely good life lessons. It's not for you to just go, and well, David did this, and, and Saul did that, and now I know not to do those things in the future. And it's not informational. It's not just, here's what happened, and you should know this. File this away so that you're not dumb. It's not that. Certainly, all of those things are in there, and we want to understand those things, and we want to get as much as we can from them. But that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose of the Old Testament is first to demonstrate the glory of God. That's the first purpose of the Old Testament. It's to demonstrate the glory of God. But then, because we're fallen, it's to separate us from God. So it's to demonstrate the glory of God, and then our need to be, and God's plan to, save humanity through Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. The primary purpose. Show God's glory, and thus our need to be, and God's plan to, save humanity through Jesus Christ. So that means that for the first century churches, as they're converting to Christianity and they're forming these congregations and there's preachers standing up each Sunday to preach, they're preaching Jesus Christ. But do you understand? They're not preaching Jesus from the New Testament because they didn't have the New Testament. They're going into every passage in the Old Testament and showing how this passage actually tells us about Christ to come. 
It's edifying to the Christian. So the Christian's purpose when we read the Old Testament is not just to understand the historical context. It's not just to take from it good life lessons. It's not just to understand things that we didn't know before. It's to uncover how this actually helps us understand God's grand purpose of salvation. That is your job as you read the Old Testament. This is why Jesus tells us in John 5, 39-40, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You understand what he's just said about the Old Testament there? He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. You search the Old Testament Scriptures because you think in them that you, they have life. But the Old Testament Scriptures bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have eternal life, he says. So Jesus is saying that the Old Testament Scriptures, all of them, bear witness about Him. And very importantly, He ends that statement with, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have eternal life. In other words, the Old Testament Scriptures testify to your need for salvation through Me. So that's ultimately where for me, every sermon has to go. Every single one is going to end there. Every single one is headed in that direction. That's my job in preaching. It's not merely to educate you, though I want to do that. It's not just to teach you about something new, though maybe I want to do that too. It's to show you week in and week out that you have a fundamental need for Jesus Christ. That is my job every single week to demonstrate your need for Christ and to show you how this passage demonstrates your need for Christ. So certainly that's the case in Psalm 39. This psalm looks to me to move in three phases. And in the first phase, David attempts to suffer in silence, which is verses 1 to 3. And what you might not notice if you're not paying attention is how connected this psalm is to the one that came before it. Remember, last week we talked about Psalm 38, and in Psalm 38, David is in the midst of being disciplined by the Lord. He's being disciplined for sin that he has committed, and he knows that that's what his discipline is about. He knows that's why he's suffering. He's in the midst of suffering. He's lost everything that's important to him. He's in the midst of despair and depression and all kinds of darkness. And he knows that it's about sin because all this conviction is coming to the surface. He understands well what the sin was that he committed, though he doesn't tell us what it was. He knows what that sin was, and he knows that the reason that he's suffering is because he has committed that sin and he's tried to hide it as best he could. But it doesn't work. And so this psalm is essentially zooming in on all of that despair that he finds. See, as we saw last week, David actually confessed his sin to the Lord. Look at verse 18 of Psalm 38. He says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Look at 21 and 22. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to me, O Lord, my salvation. So in that passage... David is pleading for forgiveness from God for a sin that he's committed and he knows he's being disciplined for. He confessed it and then he asked the Lord to, hey, relieve me of this discipline that you're putting on me. 
Bring to me salvation. Come, come very quickly. I want to end this thing. But what we see in Psalm 39 is that that healing and that relief didn't come immediately. In fact, the discipline, it seems like, was prolonged. It kept going and going and going and going. In fact, it lingered for so long. If you glance down at verse 8 and verse 10 and verse 11, you can see the mention of his transgressions in 8, the hostility of the Lord's hand in 10, and the discipline that he's still in the midst of in verse 11. And so the context of this psalm is very much the same context of the previous psalm where David is in discipline, except keep going. Go further and further and further. And he's already confessed his sin. He's already gave it to the Lord. And yet, he just continues in the suffering. It keeps getting darker and darker and darker. And the difference in this psalm and the last psalm is that David has pretty much reached his limit. He's about at the last that he can possibly take. You can see the rock of David's life just plunging deep into the hole, and it just keeps going and going. And somewhere halfway down, he says, Oh, I've sinned, I realize, and it just keeps going, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it's getting close to hitting the bottom of the, of the pit. And so he resolves to suffer in silence. In verse 2, he says, I was mute, which is something similar to what he says in the previous psalm. Look at Psalm 38, verse 13. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. So he, he's choosing to remain silent in the midst of his suffering, but there's, an actual, there's actually a good reason for his silence. And this shows you how much David is suffering and how deeply he feels this. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 39, of the psalm we're in today. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Why is he silent? He's, he's basically silent because if he opens his mouth, then what's going to come out is sinful slander before the Lord. And if he does that in the midst of the wicked person, then he's afraid that what will come out of his mouth is just casting aspersions on God. And that that's the way it will be received by the wicked person. And all that will lead the wicked person to do is just say, yeah, we were right. See, God just tortures people endlessly. And it will just lead them to fuel their own scorn that they have before the Lord anyway. And so David wants to be silent and hold his tongue, especially in the midst of them. But do you see that it didn't go very well? Look at the end of verse 2. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned. So essentially, he's holding all of this gripes and complaints that he has against the Lord in. And you can imagine David suffering, and, and make no mistake about it. He's facing the Lord's discipline, and he's upset about it. He's confessed his sin, and yet he still continues to suffer, and, and he's, he's upset, and he's trying to close his mouth, but it's like holding in lava. Instead of spewing it out, which wouldn't be good for anybody, he says, I held it in, and it just burned me all the more. 
It caused me to suffer more intensely. At the same time, he's already recognized in the previous psalm that he deserved it. He knows that he's, he's sinned. But if he voices his frustration, it wouldn't come out as anything but slanderous, which the wicked would use as further fuel for their own slander against the Lord. So what is David to do? Well, he basically voices all of this to the Lord in prayer. And make no mistake about it, verses 4 and following, verses 4 especially to 6, is, a, is an exclamation of frustration. Look at verse 4. O oh Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. If you were to translate that in like the voice of frustration that he's probably feeling, it might sound something like, just kill me now. That's the kind of despair we're feeling here. Look at five. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. See, David's words here are really reminiscent of Ecclesiastes. This is where it really starts to take on that feel of Ecclesiastes. In fact... In the book of Ecclesiastes, they're the author of Ecclesiastes. He just calls himself the preacher. But most people think that it was Solomon, David's son, who wrote that. Says this, Ecclesiastes 1-2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You remember this? If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, you've heard this. You see this word vanity appear a thousand times if you see it once in the book of Ecclesiastes. What well, might help to know that the word that the author of Ecclesiastes uses that's translated vanity is the same word that David uses here translated mere breath. It's the same word. It basically means that it's something that's like transitory. It's fleeting. It's quick. It's over like that. It has no lasting impact. So David is seeing that in his suffering, the Lord is bringing him to realize that he stands as a blade of grass before God. I am as insignificant as a breath coming out of the nostril of a horse. Nothing dissipates in no time. A mere vapor in the sight of the Lord. Now I want you to understand, just as an aside here, the Bible is unmistakably honest when it comes to describing the everyday human experience. Do you notice that? We're not sugarcoating anything, right? This is what it's like to live the human experience. It pulls no punches when describing what it's like to live under the reign of sin and death. What does it feel like? Well, it feels a lot like this. Read the book of Job. Read Ecclesiastes. Or how about Psalm 88? We hadn't even got there yet. But Psalm 88 is the most despairing psalm you will ever read. At the end of Psalm 88, the psalmist says, Darkness is my only friend. Leaves no sign of hope at all. 
darkness is my only friend. Or, or here in Psalm 39, where David just says, honestly, man heaps up wealth and doesn't know who will gather. You can't take it with you. You can write it in a will, but you can't guarantee that that will's followed through. Who's going to gather it up? So what reason do you even gather wealth? What purpose does it serve? Vanity. All is vanity. Notice, though, that he doesn't merely say, life is a breath. That's how we think of it. That's what we say, right? We'll tell some of our friends, life is short. Right? That's the way we think of it. Life is short. But that isn't merely what he says. He says, mankind is a breath. Man goes about as a shadow. Let me know how fleeting I am. David's point there is not merely that life is short. David's point is that he is insignificant. We, as individual men and women and children, are insignificant in the grand scheme of things. He's having this collision course with life itself. And he says, what is the purpose? He's reckoning with his own irrelevance. His suffering has brought him to a place where, although before, he was David, the mighty king of Israel, of God's people, shepherd of his armies, of his men, of his people. And now, he sees, actually, I'm a little shepherd in a brief moment in history, floating on a rock in space. I added the last part, but that's essentially the gist of it. It's amazing that we so frequently act happy-go-lucky. We're trained to act this way. We're trained to see church through the happy-go-lucky lens. When you walk in, that's what you're supposed to do, right? You've got to put on the smile. When on the inside, we actually feel like the book of Ecclesiastes a little bit sometimes. And maybe when we walk in, we actually do despair. But we're trained, well, you, you got to put on a happy face. We shy away from the church body, especially during moments of depression and sadness when we just can't hide it. After maybe going through the death of a loved one. Because we say to ourselves and we reason, well, no one needs to see me cry. That won't help anybody. We might shy away from letting people actually really get to know us. Because if we did, they might find out that our lives are not quite as good as theirs. And we would prefer to make church maybe a little bit more like Instagram. It looks really pretty on the outside, and on the inside, it's dying. Put on this happy face, walking into church because church is only for happy people. But that's not what the Bible is actually saying. It's a lie. It leads other people to think that that's what life is, when in reality, that's not true. Often, we feel like David, plunging deeper and deeper into the darkness. We feel like the psalmist, darkness seems to be my only friend, as we just keep falling. Last week we saw 
that the purpose of David's discipline was to get him to the moment of confession of sin. That that was a purpose of the Lord's discipline on him was to get him to the point where he actually confesses the sin that he's dealing with. But I think what we're uncovering here is another purpose for the Lord's discipline of him. And it comes in this final section where David depends on the Lord for his deliverance. He says in verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. So David's life is the rock that's quickly descending down into the pit. And on the way down, the mere experience of falling causes him to confess his sin, but it's not as though the Lord then sticks out his hand at that confession and catches him and keeps him from hitting the ground. No, he continues to let him fall. And David finally hits the ground where he realizes his place in God's grand scheme. It's just a vapor. And you can almost see David's life as it hits the ground of the pit and echoes around the bottom. I'm just a vapor. I'm a breath. I'm transitory. I'm fleeting. There's something about this moment when he finally makes contact with the floor of the pit. If I'm nothing... And God has afflicted me this way. Then my only hope is Him. What hope does a blade of grass, what hope does a pebble falling into a chasm, what hope does that rock actually have if it's as insignificant as I am? Well, I can only hope in the one that sent me here. Where else can I turn when I realize that all around me is complete darkness? I can only turn to the one who made me and put me in this situation. We find it difficult in the midst of such tragedy to reiterate that to ourselves, that the Lord actually cares for you. That, I think, is the most difficult truth to realize in the midst of depression and agony and struggle is that the Lord actually cares about you, the blade of grass, about you, the pebble. That He actually sees you there and cares and hears. Yet we have to think, don't we, at some point, I am but a breath, and yet the Lord still cares enough about me to correct me in my sin. Think about that for a second. This is what David's reckoning with. I am nothing but a pebble. I am nothing but a breath. And yet, the Lord does care enough about me to correct me in my sin. So then, what is my hope? Well, it's in Him. But this is where we see the reality of His correction and His discipline. It's not just correction for which the hand comes. It's not just confession of sin that the hand of discipline comes. What is it? It's dependence. It's so that David gets to the end of his rope. So that he can't climb his way out. So that he can't put hope in his own legs. Because he doesn't have those. He can't put hope in his friends. They've disappeared. 
He can't put hope in all the treasured possessions that he had. They've all been taken away. The moths have eaten those. David prays in verse 8 for deliverance from all his sin, from being the scorn of fools. He confesses just after that that like the moth consumes all your possessions. The moth comes in and eats your sweaters and destroys all your goods. So God consumes all that you have when He disciplines you. I've lost everything, he says. And at the bottom of all of this, David reaches a point of dependence where everything has been stripped away from him. There's no escape from any of his sin or the consequences. He can't climb his way out. And so his thought is summed up in verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. I love that line. I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. He's, he's realized that the world that he's living in is not his world. The world that he's living in is God's world. He's a sojourner. He's a guest. He's welcome to participate, but this is not about him. It's about God. So he's utterly dependent on God for everything. But this is precisely the end of the discipline he receives. Remember I said that this psalm is connected to the one before it. It's Psalm 38. It's connected straight to it. They're related. But without giving anything away for what comes next week, it's actually also part of three psalms. It's connected to the one that comes after it too. So they're all meant to be taken and read and interpreted and understood together. So without getting into and spoiling anything for next week, just peek into verse 1 of the next psalm, and you'll see how this story concludes. Right when David snaps at the bottom of this pit, hits the end of his rope, David says in verse 1 of Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. That's just what he prayed for. Hear my prayer. Give ear to my cry. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So it's at his most dependent that salvation actually comes. It's when he realizes that this is God's world, that he's just a guest in it, it's when he realizes that the world doesn't revolve around him, shocker of all shockers, but that he's the creature and God's the creator. And if he is to be saved, God is going to have to do the saving. God is the only one that can do the rescuing. I have nowhere else. You've consumed like a moth everything that's dear to me. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Don't make me the scorn of fools. My hope is in you. It's at that moment that you can almost hear David's life hitting the rock at the bottom of the pit. Brothers and sisters, I don't think we have to stretch to see how Jesus fulfills this psalm to the uttermost. First of all, in its despair. As you just read it, you get a sense of the despair that David feels. This psalm is horrible. And maybe even as you read it, you could relate to where David is. 
Maybe you've been in a similar position. You can't really explain why you're there, maybe, or maybe you know it's because of your sin. But, you, but regardless of what you can't explain, you know you felt it. That moment of isolation where all the darkness is around and you just become even comforted by the darkness. If you can relate, then you know it's an experience that you wouldn't go back to if someone paid you money. Not for all the money in the world would you go back there. It makes you shiver at the thought. The punishment that David undergoes for his sin makes all of us shudder. Even if you've never been there, the thought of being there makes you shudder. But understand that David at his worst moment in this experience is only the hem of the garment of what Jesus faces on the cross. Do you understand that? The utter agony, punishment, separation from God that Jesus feels on the cross. You think Psalm 38 is despairing? It's the hem of the garment to what Jesus is actually suffering through while He is on the cross of Calvary. If when you read Psalm 38, or Job, or Ecclesiastes, or Psalm 88, darkness is my only friend, and you come away going, I've been there, I know that, I shudder at the thought. Imagine what it's like to march up the hill to Calvary, being completely perfect, carrying a wooden cross on your back, being nailed to it after being beaten and tormented and tortured. Jesus' own disciple turns him in. His friends desert him. Even his clothing is stripped away from him. He faces genuine hostility from the hand of God. He suffers the scorn of fools. And it's almost too much for him to bear. Here David is facing discipline. But you know what the difference in David's discipline is? First of all, he deserved it. Second, it's for his good. It's discipline for his betterment. It's discipline to make him more like Christ. It's dis di discipline to bring him closer to the Lord. Jesus' punishment, his hostility from the hand of God is to separate him in my place. It's to absorb fully the fury of his wrath. Jesus on the cross takes the cup of God's wrath and drinks it down to the dregs. He takes every ounce of it, not sparing any. But the difference, of course, is that Jesus didn't face the punishment for his own sin. It was for yours and it was mine and even David's that he suffered. So the, the feeling of despair that comes from this psalm is just the hem of the garment that Christ experiences on the cross of Calvary. So Jesus fulfills the despair of this psalm by experiencing that kind of despair to the uttermost. But Jesus is also the fulfillment of David's hope. At the depths of the pit, David cries out for deliverance from his transgressions. In verse 12, he asks God to not withhold his peace. But what David doesn't realize at this moment, but what he would later know, is that what felt like rock bottom, 
was actually the rock of Christ. That's what he's hitting. That causes him to cry out for salvation from his transgressions, from peace. And it was an answer to that prayer that Christ came to give. Deliverance from sin. Restoration of peace with God. He fulfilled every ounce of the hope that David asks for in this psalm. Brothers and sisters, this is the reality of your life in Christ. The moments that feel the most despairing and dark, the moments where depression seems the most heavy and the suffering seems almost intolerable, these are the moments that you have to trust that even these moments are designed by a Creator for your good. He is good, He is gracious, He's merciful, and He is loving, and He has designed your life and all of the events therein for your good and for His glory. His purpose in your trials is yes to correct you in sin. And it's yes to make you dependent on Him for everything. He isn't through with you. He's still conforming you into the image of Christ. And as a result of conforming you into the image of Christ, that means that we're going to have to suffer at times the way Christ did. Friends, this psalm reminds us to remember our insignificance, but also Christ's significance in the work that He did for us on the cross. That while we were still sinners, He died for us. And what does He tell us in Matthew? But because He died for us, the kingdom that He established is something that you can put your hope in. Do you know what He tells you about that kingdom? That their moth does not destroy. He's our salvation who lifted us from the pit, who commands our dependence. But the difference with Jesus, He went all the way to the bottom. Perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you have been fortunate enough to experience, like David, this kind of despair. And maybe right now you're not sure whether you want to follow Christ or not. But you've been fortunate enough that when you read what David is going through, you can resonate with that and you can say, well, I've been there. And I say fortunate because the feeling of depression, the feeling of fear and anxiety is but the beginnings of the eternity that awaits you outside Christ. Do you realize that? Perhaps we don't talk about it enough in our culture. Perhaps it's fallen by the wayside. This understanding that in eternity there are two paths. One is an eternity in torment and punishment. Where the feelings of despair, fear, and anxiety, and hopelessness that David is feeling is but the hem of the garment. Jesus is not hesitant to use the description of hell as a motivating factor for you to believe 
and for you to follow. He describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth, as an eternity in torture, the fire of hell. He says, better is it for you to cut off a hand or gouge out an eye or chop off a foot than to go into hell with both. It'd be better for you to be lame in this life than for you to walk into hell with both. So perhaps you should consider that maybe your feeling of despair and depression and fear and anxiety and hopelessness that you're feeling right now outside Christ is a warning from God to you. You think it's bad now. You have no idea what awaits you. But you're also fortunate because you're here and you're hearing this. That means that God cares enough about you for you to hear the gospel. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that we have a ministry of reconciliation. In this church, that is our ministry of reconciliation. What we want you to know is that you can be reconciled to God through Christ. That you can repent of your sin. You can confess it to the Lord. You can believe in Jesus Christ. You can follow Him and live. And the Bible says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He tells us in Ezekiel, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Therefore, turn and live. The gospel is coming to you, friend. Do you understand what awaits you on the other side of death? Why not repent of your sin now? Confess Christ as Lord. Follow Him. Join with us here in church. We'll show you how to follow Him. Very imperfectly. But we'll show you. Christian, for you, understand that in the discipline that the Lord is bringing to you, whether it's been in your past, in your present, or in your future, it is for your good, both for correction in sin and to bring you to a point of dependence. We're going to pray, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word to us. I'm grateful for your correction that you give time and again to all of us. But not just the correction, but the testimony of your word, testimony that we've sung this morning, that you are good to us, that our hope is in you, that you are the king on the throne, that we can trust you, that you're good. So Father, we pray if everyone in this room who might be in the midst of struggle, maybe in the midst of unbelief, or maybe has come on the other side of discipline or is about to go into it, that this would give us a lens to look through that you would help us to see Calvary. You would help us to see the glories of Christ on display in front of us. 
and that it would cause us to come to him in dependence for our salvation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.